wanted to talk about tonight is something that's, you know, I think typical when we find in the Torah and in ancient wisdom, you think about some documents that are 3,300 years old uh, or the Talmud, which is 1,500 years old. But these are ancient documents, yet we find insights and wisdom that are relevant to some of the most perplexing and challenging issues uh, of today. Um, so, and I wanted to kind of talk about something which is, I think, a central issue in life in general for all of us and kind of connect it to the upcoming holiday that we have this week. Of course, on Thursday is the holiday of Purim. Uh, and the issue, I think, that's very perplexing and vexing for us throughout our lives is the idea of love. Uh, love, of course, is one of the you know, deepest human emotions it's something that uh, you know, we have and we share, and sometimes, unfortunately, we lose uh, in our lives. It's the thing that's you know, the closest to us when we start our lives. It's the thing that we depart with when we end our lives. And it's essentially the accompanying uh, thread or theme of our lives. Like that, that's how we kind of measure you know, the people that we're closest to, the people that we connect to in our lives. That almost you know, defines who we are. And we find in the Torah some very bizarre statements about love. Um, specifically, we find instructions, mandates to have love. In three places in the Torah, we're told that we have to love, A, our fellow man, very famous verse in the Torah, love your fellow man as yourself, Leviticus 19. We're told as well, in uh, two places in the Torah, to love a convert. Someone converts to Judaism, right? They're a foreigner, they're an outsider. You've got to love them. And of course, lastly, uh, as we say in the Shema every day multiple times, we have to love God. Now, with mitzvahs, these are not, it's not optional. It's not like, hey, if you like the guy, love him. If you don't like the guy, hmm, maybe he's not your type. We don't have that. It says, love your fellow. Which fellow? All of them. As yourself. Love the convert. What if, what if the guy gets on my nerves? What if the guy uh, frustrates me? What if I don't like the way he looks or smells or thinks? Or... You've got to love him anyhow. And then we're told that we have to love God as well. Now, Judaism is not so obsessed with theology. You know, Christians, they're very into theology. Uh, in Judaism, you almost don't find any discussion. of the, You find a little bit, granted, but very little discussion about theology because Jewish theology precludes human grasping, human understanding of exactly what it is we're referring to. Go ahead. Oh yeah, it means the the the, uh, the 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 philosophy of God, the understanding of God. That's right, God Himself, God Himself, as opposed to means obviously. Yeah, the, yeah, the, the deity of God. That's right. Obviously, you know, God is the center of our religion and our focus and our prayers, of course. But we don't spend so much time analyzing God's kind of properties. Um, Yeah, the Kabbalah, of course, uh, but that's a little bit more esoteric. Well, okay, that's a good point. So this is a, this is a little bit of a subtle point. Attributes of God are not God Himself. That's not the properties of God. Not the nature of God. Uh, for example, I'll give you an example. Something that this clarifies it. We're told, for example, that Moses says to God, "Show me your face," and God says to Moses, "No, you can't see my face. No one sees my face and live. But I'll show you my back." Now, 
if you accept the Jewish definition of God, God has no face, has no front, has no back, right? It doesn't have a human form. So Maimonides explained to us, this explains to us is that Moshe is asking to understand God, right? to understand what God actually is, to understand the infinite, which is an idea that we really can't wrap our heads around. Something which is not bound by time and space is very difficult for us to even grasp what that means. And Moshe is saying, show me your face. I want to understand you like when I see someone, I see their face, I can understand them. And God says, no, I'll show you my back, which is maybe, it's, it's somewhat of an understanding, but it's not quite with the same clarity. You know, so obviously our religion is obsessed with God. You know, we pray three times a day, and with the Torah we're obsessed, God's Torah. But as to the theological uh, philosophy of what God is, uh, another good example, we don't, we don't say God's name. Like the four-letter letter name of God, which refers to God himself, is a name that, we, that Jews don't utter. We're not allowed to utter because uh, as a, in, a, in, a, in our position or, or as, as opposed to the other names of God, that refers to God himself. And the idea of, an, of a being not bound by time and space, right, not composed of any, uh, of any parts or any body, is something that is very hard for us to really understand. Thus, we're told, don't even describe that name because that could just lead you uh, down, a, uh, you know, down a, a, a tricky uh, path that maybe you won't exactly find your bearings in. Uh, that's what I mean. Uh, this is... Okay? Um, and, and especially, I think, if you contrast it with other religions, most notably the Christians, uh, where there's a lot of discussion and analysis of the exact nature of their, uh, of their deity, right? Is it one? Is it three? That's discussed ad nauseum, right? Uh, while in Judaism, you don't really find uh, a lot about that. I'm saying there's 2,711 pages in the Talmud. Uh, on the top of my head, I can think of one that discusses theology uh, in, in Chadiga. And that we said that's kind of edging into Kabbalah, like this esoteric mysticism, arcane aspects of Torah that are not exactly part of, you know, how many mitzvahs are about theology? Not so many. I, I don't know, believe in God, like the first mitzvah, like believe in God, that's it. Uh, and even that is very vague. Uh, so our religion kind of works on a different wavelength. It's, it's not about analyzing and assessing uh, the theological nature of God, rather it's understanding, like you said, how he behaves us, like the attributes point that you, that you mentioned. So if we have a hard time even defining God, understanding, conceptualizing God, we're told, love him. Right? Love is, a, is, is, a, is an emotion. It's an emotion that certainly is predicated upon an understanding of what it is you are loving. If the object of our love is something that we can't even define or understand so clearly, how are we expected to love God? And like we said, these mitzvahs are not optional. It's not like we can say, hey, if God's really good to you, you love him. If God's not good to you, maybe not today. Or What is the nature of these very peculiar mitzvahs? Uh, and I think that the answer to it, uh, the answer to these questions kind of will illuminate for us uh, in our relationships as well. Because I think uh, if you, you know, just statistics alone demonstrate that our society struggles a lot in areas of relationships. You don't have to be a genius. You say, hey, let's take the amount of marriages 
commitments to eternal love that we have every year. And let's like to look at, the, at, at how many times people reneged upon their pledge till death do us part. And you don't, have to be a, you don't have to be a statistician to know that humans are really not so good, or at least my, the current iteration of humans, are not so good at maintaining their pledges of loving their spouses till death do us part. Uh, so if it's problematic from, let's say, our perspective as Jews trying to fulfill what the Torah wants, it's certainly you know, not limited to us where we see the entire world, not the entire world, and obviously there's exceptions, but certainly in America where the majority of marriages uh, end in divorce, uh, clearly this is an area of life where um, you know, we need instruction just as humans, not just, not just as, as Jews. Uh, and I think the, um, the Torah is expecting a lot of us. So I want to try to kind of unpack this and try to see if we can reassemble this in a way that A, we'll learn about love and what it is and at least how the Torah defines it, uh, and B, if see how you know, this is particularly meaningful for the upcoming holiday. So, so we're told you have to love someone as yourself. There's only one problem with that. Well, there's a few problems with that. But there's certainly a problem is that it's not possible to love some stranger as yourself. If it says, hey, love your kids as yourself, or love your spouse as yourself, your parents, you know, your uncle. that re- you, to, to say to love everyone as yourself is obviously not something which is really, it's, it's, not, it's not something you could possibly really expect from everyone. It, seem, it seems a little outrageous. Uh, you know, how, how, how is it possible to love everyone? How much? As much as yourself? It seems a little bit bizarre. Uh, and it, it's compounded by the fact that we're told in the Torah, Chayecha uh, Kodmim. Whenever there is a question as to me versus someone else, the halacha is, the Jewish law is, your life takes precedence. So we're told that my life takes precedence than, over someone else's life. So how could it be that I have to love them as much as myself when I'm told that if there's a question, me versus them, you have to save yourself, right? Your life you know, supersedes and precedes someone else. So the answer, listen to this, guys. All of us, or all healthy humans, love themselves. Right? It's, of course, there's some people that, um, you know, that have difficulties loving themselves, and clearly, if you don't love yourself, you'll probably have a hard time loving others. But why do we love ourselves? Why does someone love themselves? Is it, is it because we're commanded to love ourselves? Is that the reason why? No. We love ourselves because it's just we have this emotional wiring that makes us look out for our own betterment. To love ourselves. We, it, it's just that that's, we just love ourselves because we've always loved ourselves. And that's what healthy people do. When the Torah is telling us, love your neighbor, your fellow, as yourself, it's not a quantitative amount of love. How many units of love? Well, if I love myself 100, I love them 100 as well. What it's telling us is the nature, the quality of the love. It cannot be that I'm loving them because it's a mitzvah to love them. You know, I see my neighbor, not the best guy, I'll clench my nose and I'll love him because it's a mitzvah. Do you love yourself because it's a mitzvah? No. You just have an emotional feeling of love towards yourself. That is how you're supposed to feel to your, to your fellow. 
And once again, all this comes back to our central problem. We're being commanded to have an emotion towards some other human being, and we have no instructions how to do it. Well, maybe we do. <laughs> but uh, on the surface, we're told, have an emotional love for your fellow, have an emotional love for the convert, have an emotional love for God, and we don't even have our own map of how to do that. So what I want to see is can we find instructions in the Torah that guide us not only to define what love actually is, but also to create a procedure, a method, a replicable, formulaic method that we could follow to love our neighbor, to love the convert, and to love God. If the Torah tells us, love emotionally your fellow, love emotionally God, it also has to tell us how to do it. And it has to be possible. It has to be possible or else it wouldn't, seem, it wouldn't be reasonable for the Almighty to expect that of us. So we have to find some sort of formula that is repeatable and replicable that if we follow those instructions, we'll be able to love almost anyone. And not only that, convert. You gotta love the convert. Is the convert included in Vahaf to Rafa love your fellows yourself? Why not, right? Why not? You would think so, right? Why not? So another question we have to answer is why, if the convert is already included in the category of love your fellow as yourself, why do we have to have a repetition? Love, your, love the convert, right? Because you were a foreigner in a foreign land. Why is that necessary once they're already under the umbrella of loving everyone? So we have a lot of questions here, not so much answers. I want to I look at the first time that love is mentioned in the Torah. Anyone knows? I want to venture a guess the first time that there was a relationship and it says that this guy... Or uh, these, these, these people that they loved each other. Anybody want anyone knows? Booyah. That's correct. So in chapter 24, one of the longest chapters in all of the Torah, in Genesis, we're told this whole uh, process of courtship that happened with Yitzchak via the proxy. Right? Abraham has his slave and he tells him, I want you to go east and find someone, a daughter from my family. And she, you know, she should and, 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 and try to court her to come and marry Isaac. And he makes him swear and he goes with the camels and the whole narrative back and forth. He sees Rebecca. Rebecca's going to dole out the water. He prays to God and says, okay, if she's the right one, I'm going to ask for water. And she's going to say, yeah, I'll give you water and I'll give your camels as well. And he goes over to Rebecca and he, he gives her all the jewelry and he asks for the water and she gives the water and she gives the camels the water. And he says, who are you? Oh, Rebecca, you're actually from the family of Abraham. Wow, mind blown. He goes and meets the family to have this negotiation. The next day they say, mm, I'm not so sure, maybe she should wait. Finally, uh, they accede and Rebecca heads back west towards Israel. And she's traveling on the camel. She sees Isaac. She falls off her camel, which is bizarre, right? Uh, and finally, the verse reads as follows. This is the last verse uh, in chapter 24. 
And Isaac, I'm just giving the translation into English, and Isaac brought her to the, uh, to the uh, tent of Sarah, his mother, and he married her, and she was to him as a wife, for a wife, and he loved her, and he was consoled after his mother. Let's reread this thing. I have a lot of details here. So Isaac brings Rebekah into the tent of his mother. His mother is already deceased. And he married her. He married Rebekah. And she was to him for, his, for a wife. And he loved her. And he loved her. And he was consoled, Yitzchak, after his mother. If you read this verse, we're describing the flourishing, nascent love of Isaac and Rebekah. It's wonderful. And we meet Sarah twice. Now, Sarah has been dead for a little bit now. And in the description of the budding love and relationship of Isaac and Rebecca, she's mentioned twice. It's like the uh, ever-intrusive mother-in-law. She's always there over your back, right? It seems bizarre. Just tell us of the love of Isaac and Rebecca. Why do we have to tell us so much? He brought her into Sarah's tent. And he married her, and she was him for a wife, and he loved her, and he was consoled after his mother. It seems like we're invoking Sarah a bit too much in this, in this narrative. So you look at Rashi. Rashi explains what's actually going on over here. Sarah, of course, one of the, the, you know, the, the matriarch of the Jewish people, the great uh, heroine, uh, someone who uh, rivaled Abraham, even superseded Abraham in prophecy, tremendous woman, she had miracles happening to her all the time. Namely, there was an ever-present cloud over her tent. Miracle one. Miracle two. She lit candles on Friday night, and they lasted throughout the week till next Friday night. Miracle three. When she made dough, there was blessing in the dough. She would make a little dough, and she'd have enough for like a hundred chalas, right? Three miracles. And what happens... Sarah dies. And after Sarah dies, the miracles go with her. And then Isaac brings in Rebecca, and he brings her into, into the tent of Sarah, and voila, all the miracles come back. Suddenly, the candles last from week to week. Suddenly, there's a cloud ever present on top of the tent. And lastly, uh, there is blessing in the dough. And Isaac is consoled after his mom. He brings her and he sees that and he loves her. He loves her. It's like, it, let's, follow the, let, let's follow the chronology. And Isaac brought her into the, uh, to the tent of Sarah, his mom, and he married her and she was him for his wife. And what happened? All the miracles came back and he loved her. And he was consoled after his mother. Go ahead. It's from the Midrash. It's from the Midrash. Yeah, well, I'm saying, but the Midrash is answering it. Well, I wouldn't say that, but the Midrash, it's a separate question. Maybe next time I'll get invited back and we can address that question at greater length. Uh, but the, the, the Midrash is, is obviously filling in the problem that we have in the verse. So this is not a Midrash which is going off verse. Right? I don't know what, you, what your beliefs are with regards to the Midrash, but, but the Midrash is clearly filling a, a void that the verse has. Um. So in the chronology, we see that Isaac loves her not before he 
you know, he married her before he brought her into the tent. But rather, he brought her to the tent, he, he, uh, uh, he, he, he took her, she was to him for his wife, and then he loved her. And I think the, the, the placement of the love directly right after, he recognized the piety, the character, the nature of Rebecca is very telling. I think perhaps what we could say with this understanding, is that the reason why Isaac loved her is because he recognized her virtues. Right? Sarah, this great woman, fantastic, you know. And suddenly, you know, she goes and all the miracles go with her. And you bring Rebecca, and you see that she is able to fill her shoes. Right? She rivals, or she's, she's, you know, she equals to Sarah in her, in, you know, in her character, in her behavior in her piety, and that's why he loved her. Perhaps what the Torah is teaching us over here is that the reason why Isaac loved her was because he recognized her character, her virtues. When he recognized the virtues, that swelled the feelings of love that he had for her. Yes, I'm sure he liked her, I'm sure he knew that she was, you know, she, you know, she was very attractive according to the Torah, uh, there was a lot of things going. There was the chemistry, I'm sure. But what really kicked off this eternal love was the fact that he, that he, that he recognized and, and acknowledged the character that she had. He realized that she was a woman of, of, of great character, of great, uh, you know, of great piety, uh, of great, great righteousness. And because he associated her with those virtues, therefore, that engendered the love. You know, there's a great uh, famous saying that uh, uh, was made popular by, uh, by Rabbi Weinberg of Asia Torah in Israel. He said like this. He said, love is the pleasure of the recognition of positive character of someone else and association of them with those virtues. And every time I heard this, I said, that's a great idea. Where's the source, right? That's the question you're taught in yeshiva to ask. Nice idea. Show me the source. Where is this? And I think this is a good source. The pleasure that, that, of love that Isaac had came from him, his recognition of her virtues. And he associated her with those virtues, and that created the enduring love that they had. And I think this also opens the door for a repeatable formula for us to have to love everyone, to have an emotional love for every person. Do you know why? Because every person that you know has something admirable about them, has qualities, has behaviorisms, has character, has character traits that are admirable. That's something that you can learn from. The Mishnah tells us, you should, who is the wise person? He who learns from every person. Every person has something to teach you. Right? If you want to really be wise, if you want to assemble all the qualities, all the possible characteristics, the good characteristics into your behavior, you have to learn from everyone. And if you are able to coalesce all the good characters and integrate them into your lives, then you'll be the wise person because you'll have them all. But the lesson is that we have to start judging people and analyzing people and identifying within people their good qualities and not so much labeling them with their bad qualities. Everyone, every human is a collection of good and bad. That's what, that's, that's what it means by, to be a human. 
You've got this blend of body and soul, and you have this repertoire, this collection of good and bad character. And the only question that I have when I look at someone else is, what am I going to harp on? What am I going to identify within someone else? Am I going to extract from them their good quality and, and analyze them and label them and associate them with their positive qualities? Or am I going to label them with their negative qualities? I say, oh, this guy's so quick, quick temper. Yeah, but they're so kind. You know, you know they're, they're so impatient, but they're so generous. And every one of us, you know, you know we, we're, we, we have these oxymoronic qualities, this dichotomous existence, because we all have something good and something bad. And the only question is, what are we going to judge in other people? When the Torah is telling us, love your neighbor as yourself, lo- love your fellow, find grounds for emotional love of the people you meet, what it's really telling us is to reform the way we judge people. We are um, wired to notice when someone does something wrong. And it's much harder for us to notice when someone does something good. And what the Torah is telling us, love your fellows yourself, what it means is, change that. Don't automatically identify someone with their negative character. Try to identify them with their positive character. And if you do that, you'll find the formula to love everyone. Because everyone has something that's admirable. Everyone has something you can learn from. Right? No one's perfect. So everyone has something you could also look down upon. Essentially, we have the tools, we have the key to determine if every person that we meet is a hero or every person we meet is a villain. We, we could do. You know why? Because everyone has something heroic and something uh, villainous about them. Everyone does that because that's what we are as humans. Okay? We're all flawed and we're all remarkable simultaneously. The Torah is instructing us. We have to change the way we look at other people. You've got to love everyone as yourself. How do I love everyone? The way you love everyone is by changing the way you look at them. What am I looking out for? Am I trying to find something positive? Am I trying to learn something that I could admire and maybe integrate into my behavior? Or I'm trying to notice, what are they doing wrong? And we all have those. We all know those people. The people that don't have any friends, by the way. You know why they don't have your friends? There's some people like that. Because everyone they see, they're automatically able, like a laser, to extract the negative qualities. I know someone like that. Everyone that he sees is able to right away assess their negative qualities. Well, if you assess someone and their negative qualities, of course you're not going to love them because you look at them as a villain. And then there's other people who always find the positive. They're always the optimistic side. They're always looking for the good. And those people have loads of friends. You know why? Because all the people that they encounter are wonderful people. And these two people meet the same group of people, and one guy meets a bunch of terrible, horrible, heinous people that you don't want to associate with. And the other one says, oh, I met such wonderful people tonight. And they met the same people. The only difference is, what was their perspective? Right? What lens did they put on when they saw those other people? And the Torah is commanding us not to love other people because find good, good crowds to love. Change yourself. And if you change the way you look at other people, automatically you'll be able to love them. Because if you notice and identify people with their qualities, right away you'll love them. Who doesn't love people with remarkable qualities? 
Indeed, it's possible to love everyone, almost everyone. It's possible to love almost everyone. And the Torah says, love everyone. And the answer is, yes, it's possible, provided that we're willing to change the way we look at them and we judge them and we identify them. If we do that, we'll love everyone as ourselves as well. We'll have an emotional love that's not based upon a obligation to love them. Rather, it's just a natural feeling that we have towards people that we admire. We love them. What about the convert? So the convert is already included in everyone, right? So if you've got to love everyone, you go, well, why do you have to love the convert? Why, why do we need a separate mitzvah for that? Listen to this, guys. Love the convert. Love the ger. Ger is the word for convert. The word ger is also the word for a foreigner. You should love the convert because you were foreigners in the land of Egypt. It's telling us why we have to love the converts. Love the convert because you are like him. You know, a convert is someone who's new. You know, the new kid on the block, the new kid in the school, you know, the new person in the neighborhood, they don't, they don't know. Like, they haven't been around. They don't know what's normal. And they're kind of hesitant. You know, they don't know what's appropriate. And who hasn't been in that situation? Collectively, as a nation, we were all foreigners in the land of Egypt. Certainly. And the Torah is telling us another way to love someone is to identify with them. Someone that went through what you went through. To try to superimpose yourself and your experiences into someone else's life. If you're able to do that, automatically you'll identify with them. You'll care for them. You'll love them. So indeed, of course the convert was included in the general mitzvah of love your fellow as yourself. But the Torah is giving you another tactic, how to do it. Another method to employ. And that is to try to find commonality between you and that person. If you find some overlapping life experience that you and that person has, if you identify with the misfortunes, with the difficulties of someone else, if you say, hey, that person is a foreigner, I too was once a foreigner. You're identifying with their woes, you'll love them, you'll care for them, you'll have a special place in your heart for them. You know, you talk to expectant parents, they're so excited, you know, delighted, new parents especially, and you ask them, Are you going to love the child? What are they going to respond? Certainly. Well, what if your child is the obnoxious brat like the neighbor's kid? Well, it's possible, right? Will you still love them? It's yours. If you, you, we, parents love their children even if there are objective reasons to not love them. Because they identify with them. They, it's part of who we are. If you, know, you love your child regardless of their negative character. And this is kind of a, a step up. Yes, the beginning is love as yourself. Find the positive. Find the goodness. What, what if you can't? Identify with them. Try to figure out why they're going through what they're going through. Why they're behaving like that. Right? To try to find a reason why you could 
identify with them and, fear, and feel for them and care for them. You know, there's a very, another bizarre verse in, in Exodus. Uh, the verse is talking about uh, a slave, a Jewish slave, who's only a temporary slave, uh, who, is, who is not married. It's a little complicated, a little inside baseball here. So he's not married, and only when he's not married is he allowed, is the, his new master, temporary master, allowed to give him a new, uh, a new slave wife to... Um, either way, um, the way it describes someone who's single is very noteworthy. This is Exodus 19. We read it a few weeks ago in the Parsha. Im begapo yavo begapo If someone comes with the edge of their clothing, they leave with their edge of their clothing. This is describing someone who is unmarried. And the question that I have here is, why would you use such a you know, bizarre euphemism to describe someone who's unmarried. I can think of a lot of different ways to describe people that are unmarried. You know, they're single, they're a bachelor, they're on their own, they're looking for someone. I would maybe, you know, not in 100 years, think of describing them as someone who comes with the edge or the clothing. The answer is because the world of the single person ends where their clothing ends. Who are they? How do they identify themselves? It's just me. You get married. It's a commitment to include someone who is outside of yourself as part of me. And we have children. Your sense of self expands. You love your kids because they're a part of you. The Torah is giving us a way to love people by saying, how do you love them? You identify with them. Because you realize, you think about what they're going through. Just like when you commit to love your spouse, right, you're, uh, you're, you're, you're committing to create a new identity with them. A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and become one flesh, we're told in Genesis. Marriage, according to the Torah, is abandoning an identity as an individual and creating a new merged identity. You're single, well, so, so this is where it ends. This is where my world ends. And as you grow, as you expand your, your you know, sense of self, right, you become a greater person. The Torah is telling us, how do we love someone? Another way to love someone? Identify with them. Try to think of what they're going through. When you do that, you include them under this little umbrella that you call yourself. And of course, you love yourself, you love them as well. And all this brings us da- down to the, maybe the hardest one of them. Loving God. you got to love God how much? With all your hearts, with all your soul, with all your resources. Exceedingly a lot. How do you love God? I mean, what do you do? I have a hard time conceptualizing God. So I want to share with you guys something interesting about, uh, about this upcoming holiday. We're told in the Talmud that when the Jews accepted the Torah at Mount Sinai, that was but the first time that they accepted the Torah. And in fact, on the holiday of Purim, they re-accepted the Torah. This is maybe not such a well-known Talmud. This is from the Talmud in Shabbos, 88a. And it says as follows. Uh, if you read in, in, uh, in Exodus, the Jewish people stood 
at the foot of the mountain. The Hebrew word for at the foot of the mountain is betachtit ha'har, which can also mean under the mountain, tachat, underneath the mountain. And the, the, the Talmud explains that what happened, the Almighty took the mountain, turned it upside down like a barrel, and held it, wielded it above the Jewish people, and said, if you accept the Torah, great. If not, I'm going to bury you there. And the people were coerced. They accepted the Torah under duress. That was the first acceptance of the Torah. And you know what? If we accept the Torah under duress, and someone says to us, hey, why do you guys not observe the Torah? You know what the answer is? We were forced into it. We were coerced. We, we accepted it under duress. Says the Talmud. However, in the times of Ahasuerosh, they re-accepted it out of love. Thus, we have two times we accepted the Torah. Once out of fear, Mount Sinai, and once out of love during the holiday of Purim. Now, I want you guys to tell me, how, how is it possible? Like, what happened on Purim that made the Jews accept the Torah? Like this, this, this whole notion, like, you read the Purim story, you know. Okay, so there was this feast, and then there's this villain, Haman, and he comes up with this crackpot idea, and he gets Ahasuerus to sign off on it. And then, you know, subsequently, there's a new queen, and Esther becomes the new queen, and she's like, uh, the, you know, the Trojan horse for the Jewish people. And, of course, Mordechai and intervention. And the, you know, the, two, the two people try to, you know, the two, uh, the butlers try to kill Ahasuerus and Mordechai saves them. A whole elaborate story. And, in fact, one of the books of the Jewish Bible is the book of Esther, where we're told the story in great detail. We'll read it Wednesday night and Thursday morning. How many times is God's name mentioned in the Megillah? Exactly zero. Not even once. And the reason is because if you read the whole story, you just map it all out, there's nothing out of the ordinary. There's, not, there's no miracles. And if you were to contrast <coughs> the Exodus, plagues, miraculous plagues, death of the firstborn, blood everywhere, right? Splitting of the sea, and then we have manna falling from heaven, and we have the, the, the mountain on fire and prophecy for everyone, that on one side. And then you have the story of Purim where it's possible to read the entire story and all the miracles and ignore the fact that God's behind it all pulling the strings. It's possible. They're exact opposites. And on one hand, we accept the Torah out of fear. Right? You're going to opt out? Who's the one who's going to say, but after the Exodus and all the subsequent miracles, say, well, this is not for me. You can't, right? What does it mean to accept the Torah out of love? What does that mean? That means to extract God from the mundane. Even when there's no miracles. There's nothing overtly had. There's no, you know, there's, you know, there's no splitting of the sea. There's no frauds everywhere. Like, no profit. None of that. It's just life maybe as you would imagine it. Everything has, you know, cause and effect. And it's possible to examine the whole story and not even think of God once. The whole story of the miracle of Purim is in disguise. That's why we wear a mask. One of the reasons why we wear masks on Purim, because everything is everything is done, you know, uh, with uh, clandestinely, with deception, so to speak, as if the Almighty is pulling the strings and doesn't let us know about it. And what happens to the Jewish people? 
They see the miracle, and they stop and they think. They say, is it really possible for it to happen without God pulling the strings? They take the episodes that could be viewed as being just part of nature. Yeah, maybe it was coincidences, but it could have happened, right? So all, all of it could have happened, even though there's a lot of different elements, uh, a lot of different levers that needed to be pulled, but it's possible for it to have happened without God, right? There's, no, there's, no, there's nothing out of the order, nothing supernatural. But the Jews said, we are going to find God in the natural world. And that, we're told, that is love of God. That's what it means to accept the Torah out of love. It means to find God in the world that we're living. Indeed, if we want to kind of angle, or we want to to approach to God, the way to do it is not via theology, because we won't get that far. We have to find how God is involved in our lives every day, but it's all hidden. This is what we're told, we're called, what Nachmanides calls, hidden miracles. There's two kinds of miracles. There's the miracle splitting of the sea. There's a miracle of hitting the rock and there's enough water to feed or, or to drink a nation of millions. I thought those are overt miracles. And then there's hidden miracles. And you know what's, what's a hidden miracle? The fact that your heart pumps 89,000 times a day without batteries. Right? 89,000 a day for 89 years. Millions upon millions upon millions upon millions of beats without ever needing a battery change. That's a miracle. No one's going to deny that's a miracle. Yeah, but do we ever think about that? Are we wowed by that? Do we, say, do we stop and say, oh my goodness, wow, like look what a miracle the Almighty is doing for us. No, because we're kind of attuned to it. We're, you know, we're, uh, you know, we're callous. We're, we, we take it for granted. The lesson of Quorum is to not take what could be misconstrued as just nature, the way things happen, to not ignore God's role in that, to not take it for granted to notice how God is involved in every aspect of our lives. We're told, Every time we breathe, we really have to thank God. Right? Yeah, well, I'm breathing. What do you mean? I do that all the time. How is that a miracle? Well, imagine if you didn't have that. You know, I was doing an exercise with one of my students recently. I said to him, okay, what would you exchange for your eyesight? Is there any amount of money or that you would exchange? And he said, well, maybe there is a number. <laughs> you didn't give me that number. But I was thinking, like, it's, it's such a wonderful miracle that we have. And I, and I, was, I was recently by a, an ophthalmologist. And, and nowadays they have this new technology where they don't put those drops in your eyes to make it hard for you to drive. They take like this, this high-resolution picture, this blazing green light of the back of your eyeballs. And I said to him, okay, I want to see the picture. And I'm like, show me the optic nerve. Show, show me the optic nerve. And he shows me these tiny little streams, so mi- microscopic almost. Without that, we're all blind to the world. Yet all of us could see, thankfully. And that's just not a miracle? Of course that's a miracle. You know, the... He was, you know, my friend who's in med school is describing me how we hear. He's like, hey, you got three little bones that create like a piston effect. And they push this little thing of water in this little circular little tube, little bone. And that creates vibrations that there's tens of thousands of little microscopic hairs within her ear. And the rate of vibrations, your brain is able to pick it up and hear sound. 
wow, that's a miracle, no? Is it or is it not? Huh? The question is, are we going to take the lesson of Purim and love God or not? Yeah, we all hear, thankfully, you know, for better or worse, right? Uh, we, we all hear. And isn't that a miracle? It, it is, of course. It's God involved in our lives, but not in some sort of supernatural way, through what we would consider to be mundane life. And Purim taught us, how do you love God? You find God in your ordinary life. If we take the lesson of Purim, we find God in our lives as well. And indeed, by the way, we can find a stream between loving God and loving your fellow. How do you love your fellow? Like we said, you've got to find the good. You've got to examine. Right? You have to scrutinize and try to find the positivity within the character uh, repertoire of your fellow. Well, what about the positivity of God? How much goodness does God do for us every day? How many miracles happened to us today that we're still alive? You know, you drank a cup of coffee today? Thanks, thank your liver that you're alive. Or, more precisely, thank the Almighty who created your liver that you're alive. Otherwise, you'd be dead. Ain't that convenient, right? And we have that, and that's a miracle, and it's every day. But if we do not take the lesson of Purim to heart and try to extract God from our life and our living, you know what? We can live our lives and never notice it and say, show me a miracle. Split the sea for me. And the Almighty is really splitting the sea every day, every second. And we're just not taking the lesson home. We're just not listening to our messages. We're just not actually, you know, just hearing and, 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 and stopping and just asking ourselves the question, is this a miracle or not? We do that. We love God. Of course we love God. We'll have an emotional love and a rest, feeling of reciprocity to God every day. And that is the meaning behind the mitzvah of loving God as yourself. And that's the lesson behind Purim. I'll give you guys something cool. A nice little side bonus. Just a little extra credit. It's been so well behaved. What do we gain if we love God? So, huh? Inner peace. So Maimonides would say even further than that. He's, Maimonides, when he talks about love of God, he says it's the greatest level of pleasure to connect to the infinite. But let's put those things aside. Eh, it sounds very spiritual. Let's kind of make it practical. I'm giving you a story here. So there's a guy who, uh, before cell phones, right? He's working in New York City in the Empire State Building on the 70th floor. And for whatever reason, he's the last out of the office, he gets locked in. And the phones are down. And he realizes he might be there overnight. So this is no way for him to communicate with anyone. So he goes to the balcony and he looks down and sees these tiny little people that look like ants walking beneath him on 34th Street in Manhattan, right? So he starts hollering, hey, 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 get me out of here. No one, turns, no one can hear him. It's so far away, right? So he comes up with an ingenious idea. How do I get the attention of the passerby to notice me and save me? He pulls out some quarters from his pockets and starts flipping the quarters down. And people in the street, they see the quarters and they start scooping them up and walking, never stopping for a second to look up and notice him. And he says, you know what? Quarters is not enough money. It just, yeah, who, 
It's not enough money. He has to throw in dollar bills. He's throwing dollar bills in fives and tens and twenties and Benjamins. He's throwing hundred dollar bills and people just scoop it out. Never stop for a second to look and thank their benefactor. So you know what he does? Genius. He goes over to the potted plant, takes a scoop full of pebbles, and throws it down. And suddenly everyone looks up, hey, what's that about? And he gets saved. This is, what does God want from us? He wants our attention. He wants our connection. He wants us to look up and be thankful to him. So he gives us all the good things in the world. All the good things. And you know what? What do we do? Unfortunately, we scoop our pockets up and keep on walking and ignore him. And what happens when something bad happens, when there's, God forbid, there's tragedy? We say, where was God? We're wired to notice God, to look up when bad things happen. If we love God, if we find meaningful connection to God because of the good that he does for us, he doesn't need to get our attention by throwing the proverbial pebbles. You know, one of the great mysteries of life is why do bad things happen to us? Whether we're good people or not, is, that's a debate. But a lot of bad things happen. And from our perspective, the Jewish perspective has always been, is that there's one goal in life, and that is to have a connection with the Almighty God. That's the one goal. And the Almighty is going to enable us to have that. And he gives us all the good things in the world, and he's showering us with quarters and dimes and nickels and pennies and dollars and... And he just, all he hopes is that we th- we're thankful to him. We appreciate him. We notice him. We love him. We recognize what he does for us. And you know what? If we don't, he's going to have to find other ways to get our attention. And that's unfortunate. And that's painful. But the result is the desired outcome. So the one benefit that we have is if we're appreciative of God, if we notice God, if we're thankful of God, if we have gratitude, and we fulfill the dictum of love God because he does so much good for you. If we follow the lesson of Purim, we won't need to have that little nudge in the ribs. We won't need to be awakened and aroused to his existence and his dominion by painful you know, suffering and tragedy. We, we don't need that. We don't need to stub our toe and say, "Where God, where were you? But because we're appreciative of what he does for us in the positive sense. And by the way, the Torah and Jewish law makes that very easy for us. Every time you eat, you say a blessing. You're appreciating the fact that the Almighty gives you food out of the ground. Has anyone here ever tried to chew soil? I, I think my kids have. Uh, but I, I, you can't eat it. You try chewing a seed, it's not food. You put the seed in the soil and pff, miracle, you have food. That's a miracle. And we say, thank you, almighty God, for taking bread out of the soil. Moti lechem By doing that, we're thanking God for the money he's dropping towards us. And when we do that, he doesn't need to come to unconventional methods of getting our attention. You pass the mezuzah. Every time you pass the mezuzah, you think about that. Every prayer, morning and night, these are touch points that we can have with God in our lives. And the lesson of Purim, I think, uh, is... Uh, you know, a lesson that's, that's relevant, of course, in our relationships. Um, uh, of course. And I think if people just kind of maybe shifted and amended uh, their perspective of what love ought to be, we would have a lot less divorces. I could guarantee you that, right? If people were trying to look for the positive of the people they encounter, if, if someone was always trying to find the good in their spouse, 
Or, you know, you know, dare I say, if, you know, if someone was able to find meaning in what may be considered mundane, you know, like, you know, if, 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 you're, if your spouse makes you breakfast, right? Well, who doesn't make their spouse breakfast, right? Is that what you say? It's mundane. Do you find love out of what may be mundane? Unfortunately, there is this idea that every kiss begins with K, Right? If you want to have love, you got to do something outrageous. You know, you know, what, you know what, what, what was outrageous? Mount Sinai was outrageous. You know how long that lasted? Not very long. What happened 40 days later? Golden calf. What is the enduring, what, what, what ensures an enduring relationship? The lesson of Purim. To find meaning in love in what would be mundane. In regular life. Make that meaningful and then indeed it will last. So I think this is a very... Uh, uh, powerful lesson for us in our lives, in our relationships most certainly, not only between other people, between our spouses, between people that we're most close to, and we want to maintain, perpetually deepen those relationships, but certainly with God as well. And that's indeed, uh, from the Jewish perspective, that's the purpose of it all. And it's the lesson of Purim, and indeed if we follow these instructions, right, very simple instructions, number one, when you meet someone, right, got to just reform the way you look at them. Try to find the positivity Alternatively, like the convert, try to find common ground. Identify with them. Feel their suffering. Be like Moses who saw everyone and was able to identify with their suffering. And lastly, a relationship that we have with God. It's not that we don't wait for a miracle. This miracle is happening all the time. Find the connection that we have with God all the time in things that are not out of the ordinary. And indeed, Using that for a relationship with God and a relationship with other people will hopefully give us a much more uh, uh, enriched and meaningful life. And thank you all for listening. <laughs>